0: turn once more today to the book of Psalms, and particularly to the 90th in the collection, Psalm 90. Sometimes uh, we sing a portion of Isaac Watts' paraphrase of this psalm, O God, our help in ages past. And this morning we have the pleasure of reading the psalm itself and in its entirety. Psalm 90 is a prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were born or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn man back into dust and say, Return, O children of men, for a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by or as a watch in the night. You have swept them away like a flood. They fall asleep. In the morning they are like grass which sprouts anew. In the morning it flourishes and sprouts anew. Toward evening it fades and withers away. For we have been consumed by your anger And by your wrath, we have been dismayed. You have placed our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days have declined in your fury. We have finished our years like a sigh. As for the days of our life, they contain 70 years, or if due to strength, 80 years. Yet their pride is but labor and sorrow. For soon it is gone, and we fly away. Who understands the power of your anger and your fury according to the fear that is due you? So teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. Do return, O Lord. How long will it be? And be sorry for your servants. O satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days you have afflicted us and the years we have seen evil. Let your work appear to your servants and your majesty to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and confirm for us the work of our hands. Yes, confirm the work of our hands. Father, I pray that even now you would confirm the work that my hands have done this week. Confirm um, the work of my Mind and my lips and my heart now by coming and leaving me not to speak uh, my own words uh, in my own power, but that you would come by the Holy Spirit and that you would speak through your word, through me. And let us all hear today. God, show your majesty to us, your children. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as you can see at the very top of this psalm, it is a prayer of Moses, the man of God. And it's the only psalm, incidentally, that names Moses as its author. And since Moses lived well before the other known psalm composer, Psalm 90 may well be the oldest of all the psalms in the collection. And as you noticed in our reading along, this psalm is both a a lament and it is a prayer. In this psalm, Moses mourns over the brevity of life and the difficulty of life and sometimes the seeming futility of it as well. And then he concludes with a plea that God would return and a plea for revival, really, among God's people commentators suggest that Moses probably penned these lines during that difficult period when Israel was roving about the wilderness for 40 years as a judgment upon their sin and unbelief. You remember the story perhaps after rescuing them from slavery in Egypt, God had prepared for them a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey But they were too afraid and too stubborn, actually, to enter in. And so God promised that instead they would wander the wilderness until that unbelieving generation had died away in the Lord's presence. And when you think about all these people who had been rescued from slavery in Egypt... Now, spinning out their days, drifting around in circles in the wilderness, you can see why Moses would lament over life's brevity and over its futility. The commentator Franz Delitz suggests that Moses must have written these lines particularly as he watched all the old folks who were finally dying away before his eyes. You can probably hear that in verses 5 and 6. Can't you have swept them away? like a flood, they fall asleep. In the morning, they are like grass which sprouts anew. In the morning, it flourishes and sprouts anew. Toward evening, it fades and withers away. And so it was with the children of Israel in the wilderness. And so it will be if we live to old age. Many of us will see it happening before our own eyes too. If we get to be old, all of our contemporaries, all of our friends, all of those whom we knew in the days of our strength will begin one by one to vanish from the scene as well. And we will know in that day, if we don't know now, how short life really is and how painful. And so as Moses looks out on these realities among his people, as he watches his countrymen perishing one by one by one in the wilderness, he begins to pray. He begins to address God concerning life's brevity and its difficulty. And he also reminds himself of why it is that way. And then he prays that God would interject himself into these bleak realities. And in the midst of that prayer are these famous words in verse 12 Teach us to number our days. Teach us to number our days, Moses beseeches the Lord. And much of this psalm really is about numbering days. Did you notice that as we read? All throughout this psalm, especially in the first 12 verses, Moses is interested in the passing of time, in numbering days. And we can see that plainly in the temporal vocabulary that he employs here. We can see it by noticing the time words that he uses throughout the psalm. Verse 1, generations. Verse 2, from everlasting to everlasting. Verse 4, a thousand years. Verse 9, all our days. Verse 10, 70 years. Or, if due to strength, 80. And then in verse 12, as we said, teach us to number our days. That's what Moses is quite interested in in this psalm, numbering days. And so I just want us to pursue that theme for a few moments and let it serve as the first of three headings this morning. Numbering days. Moses, of course, prays that we will learn to number our days. But he actually begins the psalm by remembering that we cannot number God's days. Isn't that what he says in verses 1 and 2? Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations before the mountains were born or you gave birth to the earth and the world. Even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. We cannot number God's days. Not only because he's so much older than us that we can't go back in time and see how old he really is, but because we can't actually talk about how old God is. We can't actually talk about God having an age at all. Because he has existed from everlasting. From before the mountains were born. From before he gave birth to the earth and the world. From before there was such a thing as time. At least time as we know it. From everlasting, you are God. And that's just something that we ought to pause and consider every now and again and marvel. That our God never had a beginning. When he talks about himself, he does not use the kind of terminology with which we're accustomed to describing ourselves. God does not talk about when he was born because he was never born. God doesn't talk about birthdays, right? God doesn't speak about where he's from because he isn't from anywhere. In fact, when he described himself to this same Moses in Exodus chapter 3, the Lord simply called himself, do you remember it? I am. That's all God needs to say about his existence, isn't it? And in some ways, that's all he can say. Not I am of such and such an origin, not I am of such and such an age, not I am of such and such a place, but simply I am from everlasting I am God. And not only from everlasting, but to everlasting. This God who never had a beginning will also, verse 2, never have an end. And so while Moses is keen to ask the Lord to teach us to number our days, he begins the psalm by reminding himself and his readers and his God that we cannot number God's days. He is so different from us, from everlasting to everlasting. You are God. But then Moses moves on in verse 4 to another observation concerning numbers and days. Not only does he say that we cannot number God's days, but he also takes a moment to observe how God numbers our days, how God numbers the days of this universe. Verse 4, for a thousand years in your sight, are like yesterday when it passes by or as a watch in the night because God is from everlasting to everlasting because he is infinite because the lord existed well before this brief space-time capsule that we call the universe and that really is all we've ever known. Because God existed well before this universe and because he will continue to exist forever when it all draws to a close, well, then what seems for us an enormous amount of time, the psalmist says, is but a fleeting shadow to God. You think about the cicadas that descend upon us every few years. They're only here mercifully for a few weeks, and then they're gone, right? Now, for them, those few weeks, I I don't know if bugs think like this, but if they do, for them, those few weeks probably seem like a really long time, right? It's their whole life above ground. But for us who watch them come and go, it's just a season, and thankfully not a very long one. And how much more so With us and with God outside of us, who is from everlasting to everlasting. A thousand years to Him goes by as quickly as yesterday went by for you. And the 70 or 80 years of our lives, well, James says it's just a vapor. It doesn't even last as long to God as the cicadas do to us, just a vapor. And not only are our days days brief in comparison to God's eternity, but also because God actually exists outside of space and time and is not bound by space and time like we are. Wayne Grudem in his book Systematic Theology says that God, quote, stands above space and time and is able to see all as present. In his consciousness. In other words, when God stands outside of this space-time capsule, he can see everything at once from the beginning to the end. He stands outside of this universe. God can see the beginning of a thing and the ending of a thing, even such a gigantic thing as the entire existence of this universe all at once. And we can't wrap our minds around how that can be, of course, because we've never done anything but exist within time. But if we can even begin to understand it, then we will see why Moses can say a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by or as a watch in the night. God numbers our days. God numbers the days of this universe, and they are to him as brief as the lifespan of an insect. And then Moses has one more thing to say about the numbering of days, namely, he asks the Lord to teach us to number our days. God numbers our days and they are very brief to him, but Moses recognizes that we, verse 12, must also learn to number our days. And I think what Moses may have in mind here is perhaps that we learn to number our days a bit more like God does, that we learn to view our lives like God does from the perspective of eternity and thus to realize how fleeting they really are. I think that's what Moses has in mind when he speaks in verse 10 of our lives amounting to 70 years or 80 if we're healthy and strong. He's not saying, boy, 70 years, that's an awfully long time to live with labor and sorrow. No, more like 70 years or even 80. It's gone in a flash. And it's a shame that That brief time is filled with such difficulty. I think that's the gist of verse 10. Moses is lamenting how brief life really is. And he's already done that, of course, in verses 5 and 6 as well, hasn't he? Comparing us to the grass. And Moses has seen this brevity of life firsthand as one Israelite after another has been buried out there in the wilderness. Moses' own brother and sister And many others whom he had known and loved for those many years, these people with whom he had erected the tabernacle, these people with whom he had worshipped the Lord, these people whom he had shepherded for all those many years, they're all flying away now. They're all vanishing like the grass. And as I said before, many of us will live long enough to see these very sorts of things happening with those we know and love as well. And so we must learn as Moses says, to number our days. We must ask God to help us see how brief our lives really are, and especially in light of eternity, his eternity. God has existed from eternity past, from infinity. A thousand years to him passed by as quickly as a busy Saturday does for you, and here we are walking this earth in only a fraction of that time, verse 10. As for the days of our life, they contain 70 years, or of due to strength 80 years. Yet their pride is but labor and sorrow, for soon it is gone, and we fly away. Soon it is gone. And so Moses asks of the Lord, teach us to number our days. Teach us how brief life really is. And not simply so that we can lament. Not simply so that we can feel sorry for ourselves. Not simply so that we can say, what a shame that life is so brief and it's full of misery as we go. Not so that we can live with this constant sense of dread to say, boy, life is brief. I'm going to be dead any day now. Why should we ask God to teach us to number our days? Well, Moses says in verse 12, so that our hearts might be wise. Teach us. To number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. If you can realize how brief your life really is, you will be wise. If you can realize that you are like the grasshoppers, like the cicadas, like the watch in the night, like the vapor that comes out of your mouth on a cold winter's morning. If you realize that's what my life really is in the span of eternity, then you will be wise. Teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. Now, how, how does that work? How can numbering our days, how can realizing how brief our lives really are, how does that give us a heart of wisdom? Well, Moses doesn't say, does he, in verse 12. But I'm sure we can think of a few reasons why it's wise for us to consider the brevity of our life. For one thing, numbering our days reminds us that we are not God. We are not God. He is from everlasting. We are a 70 years vapor in this world. And if that's true, let's not put our interests above His. Let's not think that we greenhorns are wiser than the ancient of days. Let's not question the judgment of one who can declare the end from the beginning. When our own vision is limited to a tiny pinhole, that covers only a few years of time and space? Let me put it to you like this. When you're tempted to question God, when you're tempted to vaunt your wisdom against His and to think that you know better than He is, and maybe you wouldn't say that, but we often live like that, don't we? When you're tempted to do that, when you're tempted to try to figure things out as though you were wiser than God and to judge the wisdom of His promises and his providences based only on what you can see in this 70 or 80 year sliver of time and space that you've been given when you're tempted to do that you are like the man who tries to write a doctoral thesis on the ecosystems of the Atlantic Ocean based only on having thoroughly researched a five-gallon drum of water that he brought home from the beach on his vacation in Florida utterly ridiculous right what a foolish endeavor to pronounce judgments from such a limited sample size and how much more foolish when mankind attempts to judge the wisdom wisdom of god from the very limited perspective that we are given in these brief fleeting years of our life in this world so we must number our days so that we will remember that we're not god but we must also number them so that we won't waste the few years of life that we have been given, right? If you knew this morning that you only had 30 days to live, would you live differently than you're doing right now? Probably all of us would. I'm not saying that we need always to live as though we only had 30 days left. But what I am saying is in the grand scheme of things, 30 days are really scarcely less fleeting than 70 or 80 years. It will all go by so quickly, won't it? Those of you who are a little bit older can attest to this. How the time seems to evaporate from us. And life becomes filled with things that we wish we'd done. Or we wished we'd done differently while we had the chance. But now the time is almost up. So number your days. Remember the brevity of your life and live for God while you have a chance. Love your family while you have the time. Share Jesus while you still have breath with which to do so. Because you are like the grass, verses 5 and 6, and you will wither away so quickly. Teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. Wisdom that realizes that we're not God. Wisdom that keeps us from wasting our lives. And also wisdom that makes us ready for heaven. When you number your days, you'll be more likely to be ready for heaven. Because how many people delay making preparations for heaven because they think they have the time? Oh, I'll probably live to be 70 or 80 years old, and I'm only halfway there right now. And so, yes, I'm concerned about eternity. I really am. And in due time, I will, I promise myself, I will get down to a consideration of what it will take for me to spend eternity happily. That's foolishness too, isn't it? Foolishness, first of all, to presume that God will grant you the normal 70 or 80 years. He's not obligated to do that. It's he who gets to decide these things, isn't it? Verse 3, you turn man back into dust and say, return, O children of men. But even if he should grant you 70 or 80 years, even as we've been saying, that will go by like the lifespan of a blade of grass. It will pass as quickly as the cicadas, and so there's no time for dilly-dallying, is there? Life is too brief to put off something so important as the eternal state of your soul. And some of you may have been putting it off. In fact, it may even seem to you right now like, well, you know, I mean, I know what he's saying, but really 70 or 80 years is quite a bit of time. I mean, how many days is that? Which is why we started where we started. If you look at your life in the grand scheme of things, in comparison to eternity, you'll realize you are just a vapor. And I hope you realize it. And if you do, you, some of you who have been putting off turning to Christ, telling yourself that eventually you'll turn to Jesus, but you still have plenty of time to do so. If you realize how brief your life is this morning, you'll, you'll want to take a recount You'll want to go back and more carefully number your days and see if you really want to take the risk of delaying even one day longer your repentance and faith in Christ. Teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. That's one of the main themes of this psalm, I say, the numbering of days. And then secondly, Moses is concerned not only with numbering days, but also with why our days are numbered. Our days are numbered, aren't they? Every one of us. Why are they? Why are our days so short? Why are our lives ever so brief? Well, the answer, the simple answer is because God has determined it to be so, right? Isn't that what Moses says in verse 3? You turn man back into dust and say, return, O children of men. And again in verse 5, you have swept them away like a flood. So it's God who determines the number of our days. Yes, we are to number them, but it's God who sets the number. Do you believe that? Do you believe that it's God who determines the day and even the hour of your death? I know there are all sorts of secondary causes, but God's ultimately in control of them all, isn't he? And as a kind of aside from the main point of this psalm, that's actually a good thing to realize that you are not ultimately at the mercy of cancer or drunk drivers or immune disorder or modern medicine or government health care laws or what have you. God has numbered your days, and you shouldn't talk otherwise. You shouldn't act or murmur as though something else had you under its thumb. God is sovereign over all those things, and it is he who's appointed the day of your death. Verse 3, it's he who's numbered your days. But the question now that we're asking is why has he done it the way he's done it? Why are our years ever so brief, verse 10, and so difficult? Why is there pride but labor and sorrow? Why does man made in the image of God, man the crown of all God's creation, why does he have it so difficult? Well, if you read from verse 3 all the way down through verse 11, you'll hear Moses discussing this and explaining it, why it was that his fellow Israelites were doomed to die in the wilderness, why it was that their lives were so brief and so difficult. And the answer that he gives as to the brevity of their lives in the wilderness is really the same explanation as to why all human life, really fits the descriptions of brevity that Moses has been giving. So just listen to verses 3 through 11 again, and I think it will become obvious to you why God has so limited our days. You turn man back into dust and say, Return, O children of men, for a thousand years in your sight, or like yesterday when it passes by, or as a watch in the night. You have swept them away like a flood. They fall asleep. In the morning they are like grass which sprouts anew. In the morning it flourishes and sprouts anew. Toward evening it fades and withers away, for we have been consumed by your anger, and by your wrath we have been dismayed. You have placed our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days have declined in your fury, we have finished our years Like a sigh. As for the days of our life, they contain 70 years, or if due to strength, 80 years, yet their pride is but labor and sorrow, for soon it is gone, and we fly away. Who understands the power of your anger and your fury according to the fear that is due you? Did you hear it? Why is man's life only 70 or 80 years in length? Why is it filled with labor and sorrow? Why is it so soon gone like the grass of the field? The answer in verses 7 and 8 is sin, right? We are like the grass that withers, he says in verses 5 and 6. For, verse 7, we have been consumed by your anger and by your wrath we have been dismayed. You have placed our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. That's why we die. That's why all those Israelites died in the wilderness and were buried in the sands, because of their sin. Because they wouldn't trust the Lord and enter into the land that he would promised them. Because they rejected God's goodness to them and some of them even wanted to go back to Egypt. And in Numbers 13, marvelously, we read that God forgave their sin. He blotted it off of their eternal. There were still earthly consequences for it. Except for Joshua and Caleb, all the men from 20 years and up would die in the wilderness and never enter the land of promise. And that's the story of the whole human race, isn't it? Dating all the way back to the Garden of Eden, it's the very same story. In the Garden of Eden, just as in the wilderness, mankind sinned. Adam and Eve ate from the one tree that God had put off limits. All the other trees were given to them for food, and the fruit must have been marvelous, don't you think? In that garden paradise, and yet, like the Israelites so many generations later, they rejected God's goodness to them. They disobeyed his command to them, and they brought terrible consequences down on their heads, Adam and Eve did, and they brought terrible consequences down on the heads of the entire human race ever since, Paul says. Now, just as he would do with the Israelites later, God forgave Adam and Eve's sin too, didn't he? He covered them with animal skins. He did not count this trespass against them for eternity, but on earth... There would be consequences, the very same kinds of consequences that we read about in the second half of Psalm 90, verse 10. Difficult labor, sorrow, and death. And this is precisely why human beings continue to labor and to have sorrow and death down to this day. God has put the world under a curse because of human sin. And while there is for us forgiveness and the hope of eternity on earth, we are still living with the consequences of Adam's sin and of our own following him. You have placed our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence for all our days have declined in your fury. We have finished our years like a sigh. As for the days of our life, they contain 70 years or of due to strength 80 years. Yet their pride is but labor and sorrow, for soon it is gone and we fly away. That can be said just as well of us as it was of those people in the wilderness. It's our own sin. And this is why we can never shake our fist at God No matter how much trouble we may endure or see on this planet, we are the ones who made it this way. God did not design man to die, did he? God did not design the world so that we would have to toil and sweat just to put food on the table. He did not design the world with any sorrow or difficulty built in. He designed man to live forever in perfect bliss and in perfect fellowship with God. He designed us so that in some ways it should have been said of us too. A thousand years are like yesterday when it passes. We should have lived eternally just like God does. We should have had a beginning unlike God, but never have an end just like God. We are the ones, though, that brought all this death and pain and difficulty into the situation. And we're the ones who continue to exacerbate it by our ongoing sin. And so when we read in verse 7 that God poured out his anger, he didn't do that arbitrarily. Not to the children of Israel and not to mankind in general. He has done so justly as the deserved chastisement for man's sin. And so Jeremiah says, Why should any living mortal or any man offer complaint in view of his sins? We haven't a leg to stand on if we want to point a finger at God for all the trouble and difficulty and fewness of our years on this earth. Why is it like this? You, he says. Why should any living mortal or any man offer complaint in view of his sins? Let us examine and probe our ways, Jeremiah goes on to say. And let us return to the Lord. Let us return to the Lord. That's for you as well you're still living in the sin that has brought death and misery and toil and sorrow into this world if you're still rejecting God's ways you're still turning your back on his directions like Moses contemporaries among the people of Israel let us return to the Lord let us repent that we've brought such a curse down upon God's world let us repent of how our own individual sins continue the chaos Let us return to the Lord. And then let us, as Moses does in verses 13 through 17, ask the Lord also to return to us. And this will serve as our third and final heading as we unfold Psalm 90 together. The numbering of days. And then why is it that our days are so numbered? And then the third thing here is This petition, verse 13, do return, O Lord. Do return, O Lord. That is Moses' plea in these final five verses of Psalm 90. He knows that Israel's predicament in the wilderness is their own fault. He knows that God has for the time being left them to their own fate, but he appeals to God's mercy just the same. Isn't that good? While we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. And so while we are yet sinners, we can appeal to God's mercy. And that's what Moses does. In the midst of his sins, he turns to God and says, help us anyway. He appeals that the Lord will return and be sorry for his servants, verse 13. He appeals that the Lord will show his loving kindness, verse 14. He appeals that the Lord will reveal his work again, verse 16. And that as a result of the Lord's returning in these blessings, that Israel will be glad and sing for joy in verse 14. That God would bless them for as many years as he has cursed them. That he would bless the work of their hands so that their labors will not be futile any longer. In short, Moses is praying here for something of a revival, isn't he? That's what we would call it in our language, revival. When God's people have long languished in their sins and under God's discipline and in misery and futility, and then God suddenly comes in great blessings that they don't deserve and brings them to repentance and renewed joy and renewed singing and renewed success in the labors for the Lord, that's revival. And that's what Moses is asking for here, isn't it? And of course, the answer to his prayer came, at least partially, at the end of those 40 years of wandering, when the Israelites finally did cross over the Jordan and began to take possession of the land of promise. Those were great days in the book of Joshua, days when God's favor was restored. Days when the work of the Israelites' hands was confirmed. God fought their battles and won their victories and gave them that good and spacious land flowing with milk and honey and all those houses that they didn't build and vineyards that they didn't plant and trees that they didn't cultivate. God gave those things to them. He confirmed the work of their hands. God heard Moses' prayer. He did not leave the Israelites in the wilderness forever. Now, yes, the curse that was brought on back in the Garden of Eden was still in effect, even in the Promised Land. The Israelites who survived the wilderness wandering still eventually died, and they still faced difficulties and challenges and sorrows and toils, even in the Promised Land. But now there was great blessing alongside all the trials. Now the Lord satisfied them in the morning, verse 14, and gave them reason to sing for joy. The Lord answered Moses, prayer and i suggest to you that this prayer of moses and especially these final five verses are a good starting place when we find ourselves in need of revival individually or corporately whenever we find ourselves wandering in the wilderness whenever we find that our sins have brought down god's discipline upon us whenever we find our iniquities have brought us into places of futility and sorrow and difficulty Whenever it becomes clear that God has ceased to confirm the work of our hands, Psalm 90 verses 13 through 17 would be a good place for us to begin our prayers. Do return, O Lord. How long will it be? And be sorry for your servants. O satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days you have afflicted us and the years we have seen evil. Let your work appear to your servants and your majesty to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and confirm for us the work of our hands. Yes, confirm the work of our hands. Is there anyone in the room this morning who needs to pray like that today? Some of you might be wandering in a wilderness even right now. Maybe not a 40 years wilderness, but maybe a 40 days wilderness. Maybe a 40 hours wilderness. Maybe you've just turned from the Lord this weekend. Maybe it's been a week. Maybe it's been a month. But your spiritual life seems stale and God is not blessing your efforts for him. And life just seems right now to you to be labor and sorrow, verse 10. And it's been a long time since you really... Sang for joy as the Israelites were to do in verse 14. And you know exactly why it is, too. Or maybe it's dawning on you this morning. You're drifting in a wasteland because, like the Israelites, you've turned your back on God, perhaps. You've not followed through in obedience to Him. You've gone back to the Egypt of your old ways, or at least turned your heart in that direction with longing. (laughs) And so it's a little wonder if you're miserable. But God is merciful, isn't He? Amen. If you belong to Him, if you are in covenant with Him by faith in His Son, then like the Israelites of old, though He is chastening you now, He has forgiven you, and He will not keep His anger forever. Amen. And like Moses in the wilderness, you may call out to the Lord and ask Him to return and to restore to you the joy of His salvation, and the Lord will here. And even if you're not yet in covenant with God, even if you do not yet know Him, even if you've never yet repented and trusted in Christ and cried out like Moses in Psalm 90, you may do so today. Today, you may look upon the mercy of God just as Moses did in Psalm 90, and you may see that mercy expressed all the more clearly. In the Lord's Supper this morning, in that God sent His Son to die for your sins and to absorb the penalty that they deserve and that you deserve, and you may call out to the Lord and ask Him to rescue you while you're still in your sins and from the mess of them. And as He did for the Israelites, so He will do for you. And He'll bring you into a whole new world. Not a physical land flowing with milk and honey, but a new spiritual world in which you will learn, verse 14, to sing for joy and be glad all your days. Amen. That's what becoming a Christian consists of, isn't it? Reason upon reason to rejoice. Now again, like the Israelites, when they entered into the promised land, becoming a Christian doesn't mean that you don't still live in a fallen world. You do. There will still be death, and there will still be sorrow, and there will still be difficulty and toil. We are still under that great curse brought about in the Garden of Eden. But amidst those things, as a Christian, you'll now have all sorts of reasons to sing alongside them and all sorts of hope, even on the darkest night. To enter into a faith relationship with Jesus Christ is to cross over a spiritual Jordan and enter into a whole new world. I urge you to enter it today if you've never done so before. Cross the Jordan, put your faith in Jesus, and enter the promised land. And then let me say one more thing about God's answer to Moses' prayer here in Psalm 90. I said before that Moses' prayer for restoration and joy and singing and blessing was partially fulfilled. In the Israelites' entry into the promised land of Canaan, and I said partially, quite intentionally, because great as the entry into Canaan was, as I said already, the people who lived there still died, they still got sick, they still had to sweat for their food, they still had various troubles, and most of all, they still sinned. In fact, the Israelites many more times in the Old Testament found themselves in need of praying once again the same sorts of things that Moses prays here because they kept on sinning. The promised land gave them much joy and much blessing and many reasons to sing, but it didn't fix everything. And it wasn't designed to. But there is a promised land in which Moses' requests will finally be answered, isn't there? I don't know exactly if this is the promise that Moses had in mind when he wrote this psalm, but God is going to answer Moses' prayer in ways far grander than when he gave the Israelites the land of Canaan. There is another promised land, isn't there? And in order to see that land, we must pray just like Moses did in verse 13, Do return, O Lord. That's actually the last prayer in the Bible. And it's the second to last sentence in the Bible. Do return, O Lord. Or as Revelation 22 puts it exactly, come, Lord Jesus. And when he does, well, that is when the prayer of Moses will finally be answered completely. That's when we will truly sing for joy and be glad all our days. That's when God's majesty will fully appear to his people, verse 16. And when the work of our hands will never feel like work again. Yes, we're living in a kind of promised land now, something like the Israelites were, and even better. It is a marvelous thing to enter into the church of God, to be a part of God's New Testament kingdom, and there are many reasons to sing for joy in it, but we still only live 70 years or 80 if due to strength. We still wither and die like the grass. We still suffer much labor and sorrow, verse 10. We still struggle mightily with sin. But a day is coming, and a land is coming, when God will finally and fully answer Moses' prayer. Do return, O Lord. Now, it may seem like a long time coming. It may seem like Jesus has delayed for longer than we would have thought. But remember, verse 4, a thousand years in God's sight are like yesterday when it passes by, or... As a watch in the night. It won't be long. A day is coming soon when the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. With the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. And in that day, the Apostle John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And here's further answer to his prayer. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying, or pain. The first things have passed away. Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb, in the middle of its street. On either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve them, and they will see his face." And his name will be on their foreheads, and they will no long, there will no longer be any night, and they will not have need of the light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, these words are faithful and true. All that is wrong in Psalm 90, verses 1 through 12... All that is wrong in this world today will be solved in that day. All that Moses prays for in verses 13 and through 17 will be answered in that day. And it will all take place just as Moses prayed when the Lord returns. And so we should learn to pray with him and with the New Testament church. Do return, O Lord. Come, Lord Jesus.